0: We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 2 this morning, but I wanted to introduce it with a brief statement or a brief story. I don't know if you all are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis wrote these books many years ago, and they've been a steady diet for our family for years and years and years. The book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, tells of a young boy. In fact, almost the whole story is about the transformation of this young boy. In fact, the opening line says there once was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. This young boy was just a beast of a boy. He was mean-spirited. He was envious. He was jealous. He was uh, quick-tempered. He was uh, privileged. He was all these different things. And uh, through the course of time, he became a dragon, you think, how can this be? What kind of a book is this? What kind of nonsense? Well, just go with it for a minute. He became a dragon. In fact, chapter 6 of this says, sleeping on a dragon's hoard and all these gold and silver, all these precious things, uh, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with a greedy, with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. I mean, he turned into a dragon. In fact, there's a picture of, now it's not really him, and this, whatever, but he was there, and uh, it, it speaks of him. Well, there is a beautiful passage, it's chapter seven of, of the book that teaches how the adventure that Eustace was in ended. And he comes, Eustace comes to his cousin Edmund and he says, I want to tell you how I became a dragon. And I want to tell you how I stopped being one. And it's a beautiful passage. Beautiful. I won't read the whole thing, but I want to read uh, parts of it because it helps us understand what in the world is this, this teaching in Colossians 2 uh, te- uh, telling us and informing us of. This dragon was there, Eustace was there, and he looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion, a huge lion. Now, if you know these stories at all, uh, (coughs) excuse me, these stories speak about Aslan, who is a Christ figure in Narnia on this this, uh, enchanted world and so forth, and he says, I saw him. I saw him. He was a huge lion. He asked me to follow him. In fact, he told me to follow him, so he did. Came up to this place where there was a well, and Eustace says, the water in that well was as clear as anything, and I thought, if I could get in there and bathe, his leg was wounded, and different things. You have to read the story to find out all that. Uh, He wanted to bathe that uh, leg and ease the pain. But the lion told me I must undress first. You think, now, dragons don't usually wear clothes. What's he even talking about? Well, he wasn't a dragon. He's a boy. But he is acting, has been acting like a dragon. He has the dragon flesh all about him. He needs to undress. And so he said, he thought, he, I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on. When I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. And so I started scratching myself. and My scales began coming off all over the place. In fact, uh, he, he, he did it to such a degree, he, he saw his scales sitting next to him and he stepped right out of it as if uh, they were just another skin. But as he looked at his body, there was still all this nasty stuff around him. So he scraped and scratched his his flesh a second time and uh, tore his skin off and, and uh, it peeled off beautifully. And out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one, went down to the well for my bath. But he saw the same thing again. He's already scratched himself twice. Now he has to do it a third time. Off got a third skin, just like the other two. Um, But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, what's this lion been doing all this time? The lion said, "Uh, you will have to let me undress you. Okay, are you ready for this? you ready for what happens? He said, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He says he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as I thought. I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. This is so interesting. I can't go into all that. He says, I didn't like that very much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into that water. It smarted like anything but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. And then he goes on, he says, after a bit, the lion took me and dressed me in new clothes. So brand new clothes that the lion provided. And this is an interesting statement, just a couple more things. In this, this chapter, he says, um, Edmund, or Eustace says to his cousin Edmund, by the way, I'd like to apologize. I have been, uh, I'm afraid I've been ra- uh, pretty beastly. And if you know the story of Edmund, you know, he was pretty beastly as well. But Aslan uh, uh, saved him. This is an interesting interchange. Eustace asked Edmund, do you know, uh, who is Aslan? Do you know him? And Edmund replies, well, he knows me. He's the great lion, the son of the emperor beyond the sea, who saved me and saved Narnia. We've all seen him, and so forth. What is uh, encouraging about this is how C.S. Lewis ends this chapter. He says, It would be nice, and fairly nearly true, to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun." Eustace was a beastly child, and yet Aslan, the interaction with Aslan and the the undressing and the dressing that, he, that Aslan provided him was transformative. And the, actually, one of the last statements in the book uh, is uh, says when they got back into to England and back in our own world, everyone soon started saying how Eustace had improved and how you'd never know him for the same boy. That's salvation. That is just a tremendous a story, a telling of of uh, God's wonderful redemption and how He is changing us from the inside out. It's not just a matter of the skins coming off the dragonish skins. It's dealing with the heart that that Eustace had. He was he was a beast in the way that he interacted with so many different folks. So as we look into Colossians chapter two, we see the beauty, the wonderful comprehensiveness of salvation. Not just enough about taking skins off, but the inner change that that occurs, that Christ does for us. Let's read, or I'll read it for us, uh, Colossians 2, beginning at verse 8 through verse 15. uh, Paul says to the Colossians and to us, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. We have a great telling, beginning in verse 11 and 12, uh, and into, well, 11 and 12 have a, a telling about this wonderful salvation that is available to us in Christ. And if you were to put these three ideas together in verse 11 and then the two ideas in verse 12, that there is this, this formula for the Christian life, both how you enter faith, how you enter a relationship with Christ, but also how we live in our relationship with Christ. And it can be summarized in three words, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, death does not appear in verse 11, but the idea of what he's talking about here and the cor- the corresponding a parallel passage we'll look at here. Speak about death. Dying to self is what is, is spoken of here in verse 11. We'll look at that this morning. And then, of course, the next two ideas in verse 12. Buried with him and then raised up. So death, burial, and resurrection. We are in Christ. We can do it on our own selves. Eustace couldn't save his own self, deliver his own uh, uh, soul from the beastly attitudes and appetites of his of, of his uh, soul and yet God through Christ is able to do it and is so desirous of, of doing it saving us verse 11 speaks about this death or this circumcision this uh, wonderful uh, practice that is demonstrating our union with Christ it's not something that is foreign to us it is not something that that we do in ourselves, the only way that this work is effective for us, this death, burial, and resurrection, is when we are in Christ, such that his death becomes our death. His burial is our burial. His resurrection is our resurrection, both in terms of entering a relationship with Christ, but also how do we do do this stuff every day? Well, death, burial, and resurrection, we let God... uh, uh, well, we put to death the desires of the deeds of the flesh. We consider them as as separated, away from us. We don't want anything to do with them anymore. And yet God is the one who raises up to walk in newness of life. These wonderful ideas are here throughout. Uh, this this uh, verse celebrates circumcision, but not as these false teachers in Colossae were teaching it. They were saying, Oh, you need to have this this act done so that you will have a right relationship with God. And Now Paul says, that's foolishness. We don't, we don't pursue, pursue that uh, practice. We are about what uh, Christ has done for us. We're about his uh, salvation, his uh, sanctification in us. He says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Well, what is this circumcision at all? Where did it come from? Well, it comes from God's command to beloved patriarch, one of the, the founding fathers of the nation Israel, first with it, when, when it was a family, but then it became a nation later, and circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made to Abraham. In fact, if you want to look at it, it's back in Genesis chapter 17, where God, in fact, commands Abraham and all of his male members of his household to be circumcised. That is the cutting away of the foreskin of the male sexual or reproductive organ. This is, think, what, and what is God even concerned about that for? Because of what it symbolizes, because of, because of what it communicates to each man, because of what it communicates to the community, the family, and then also to the world. That's kind of a strange thing. Well, it it speaks so much about what is going on here. Genesis 17, beginning at verse 9, says, uh, God told Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant. Which you shall keep. Now, there was another covenant, but this is a sign of the covenant, the sign that God promised uh, back in early, well, going back as early as uh, chapter 12, the, the Abrahamic covenant. But he says, This is my covenant. Um, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And he goes on and says, Who should do it? And, and so forth. And if, if somebody's not, a male is not circumcised in this way, then he is to be. Uh, cast away or cut off from his people he's broken my covenant it's not acceptable i think what in the world is god all concerned about this for well because god is concerned about it because of what it communicates for these people this uh, uh, paul makes a big deal about this fact that notice genesis 17 chronologically speaking happens before uh, leviticus uh, twelve, Leviticus twelve is the commandment on the eighth day. Uh, all uh, the flesh of his foreskin, the flesh of a newborn son, shall be circumcised. What it, what Paul brings out at this point is Abraham had already, back in in chapter fifteen, had already believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Well, wait a minute. Was Abraham circumcised at that time? No. It was some time before that whole event. Well, so circumcision was not the means by which Abraham was declared righteous. It was a sign that he was righteous. It was a sign that he was in a right relationship with God. this This circumcision was a sign or a symbol of that covenant relationship. It is a sign of purity of of uh, cleanliness, of devotion. You know how many times, so many times uh, David speak, King David speaks about. Uh, the uncircumcised Philistines, and namely, it was a big, tall guy, Goliath. And you know, he this who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God? There was such a distinction between the righteous Jews—not they weren't always righteous all the time—but because they were in a relationship with God and had this this covenant sign of circumcision, especially those Philistines—they are uncircumcised, unclean, ungodly rebels against God. And here we are. Uh, fighting for, for God's sake. Many times the, the lack of circumcision is related to uncleanliness or ungodliness or, uh, being defiled or, or having, or not having rather piety or devotion to God. Whereas being circumcised, right? Right. Paul in Philippians three says, you know, if anybody has reason to boast in the flesh, I more than anybody else, I'm a this that, and the other thing. But he says in verse five, I was circumcised the eighth day. Now, not like he had a great choice in the matter, right? He's eight days old. He doesn't have much. He's not He's not telling Mama, I want to be circumcised. That was something that was done to him. And yet he's, he revels in it. He rejoices in it says, well, this is true of me. This sign was a, a mark of distinction between Jew and Gentile. As I mentioned, the uncircumcised Philistine thing. But even, we read it, uh, and we'll read it again here in Acts 15, there was a big issue between Jew and Gentile. You, you realize that the early church was predominantly Jewish, these messianic believers, right? And that, the problem wasn't what do you do with Jews coming to Christ? The problem was what do you do with Gentiles? How do these Gentiles come into the, into this church thing? This is a Jewish thing, a Jewish Messiah and all this. And, and, and yet, we've just read Acts 10. God has made all things clean. Don't you be calling anything that I've made clean unclean. And Peter said that and brought the gospel to Caesarea. And we see the aftermath of that. And we see that he is... Um, breaking down that barrier, the division between Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised. This is the issue here in Colossae, that the false teachers are saying, well, you know, circumcision really goes a long way. Christ is, is good for certain things, but, you know, circumcision and the festivals and the new moons and the Sabbath days and and asceticism, you know, don't touch this, don't do that, that can help us. And, and Paul is saying, forget about that. That's shadowy stuff. The substance belongs to Christ. Don't even worship, worship angels. Jesus is head over all rule and authority. There's no question. There's nobody higher than him. Nobody can uh, appeal his choice of salvation to us and say, well, you know, Satan is over Jesus. No, that's not the case. Satan is a defeated foe. He is defeated. And so we go right to Jesus and we find his salvation. This, this circumcision was a divisive issue in the early church. And we, Acts 11 talks about it, Acts 15 talks about it. Galatians is almost entirely written about this issue of circumcision. And that's where Paul makes that point. Was Abraham justified before or after his circumcision? It was before. Circumcision has nothing to do with it. We'll see more examples about it. In fact, from the earliest time, we see the commandment back in Genesis 17 and the practice of it, Abraham and all his household, and then, of course, and Ishmael was in court, included in that as well. I think Ishmael. Oh, so Muslim, Arab, Arabs, what it was, uh, the, the peoples there, but, but then uh, Isaac was was circumcised as well on the eighth day. In fact, he was the first one to be uh, circumcised on the eighth day, evidently, at least according to scriptural uh, narrative. But always there was a bigger issue. It wasn't just so much the removal of a portion of skin, as as painful, as difficult as that may be. It was always a symbol of something bigger, that God wanted to communicate to them. For example, and this is just a tremendous passage. You think, how in the world can Deuteronomy carry such uh, devotion or such uh, heavenly words? And we think, well, that's not even the right question. It's it's God's word. And yet, Deuteronomy chapter 10 is almost like the New Testament. It's almost like uh, grace. It's almost like, it doesn't matter what you do or don't do, but this is what you must certainly be concerned about. Uh, Deuteronomy 10 Beginning at verse, oh well, like twelve, but but specifically verse fourteen. I'd, I'd love to develop this passage more, but just to, to note this, uh, there are, there are two two ide- two uh, presentations of three ideas each. So there's the idea first of all, who God is in verse twelve, verse fourteen rather, what He's done, secondly, and thirdly, what are we to do about it as a result. Uh, Moses says, verse 14, this is who God is. Behold, uh, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth, and all that's in it. Who is God? He's the creator of all things. He's sovereign. He's redeemer. He is sustainer of all things. And verse 15, what did he do? Well, He uh, on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose the descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is to this day. Well, what's the result then? What should people do? Verse 16, so circumcise well, we already do circumcise. No, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. What is this? God, you're, you're confusing us. We we do this circumcision thing. And yet, do you know, in the whole 38, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, no one had been circumcised? There's a whole ceremony in John, Joshua chapter 5. All the males who had been born during that course of the time, they had not been circumcised. And so they did. That's where they have Gilgal and all this wonderful things going on there. But during that whole time, nobody was following the Lord's commandment. That's why in the plains of Moab, as Moses is speaking to them, circumcise your heart, cut off the dead, decaying skin of your heart, the the stubbornness, the stiff-necked rebellion against God, stiffen your neck no longer. He goes on in verse 17 and does the same kind of thing. Who is God? What has he done? And what's the response? And this is so tremendous because it teaches us what does God require of us? It's not so much the keeping of the law. It is a devotion to him. And if we love him, then we're going to love other people. Just to finish the idea here, verse 17, the Lord your God is the God of God, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Wow, that's our God. Isn't that tremendous? Nothing like our current politicians or government workers. This is God showing us what is it like to be leader, uh, authority. What does he do? Verse 18, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So what should we do? As a result, verse 19, show your love. Show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. So he tells us all these things, and the result is, because of what God has done, we should love, we should serve, we should meet needs. We'll see how that comes in, specifically with of circumcision from Galatians 5. But he says, love, show your love for the alien. The greatest commandment, of course, is to love God. The second is like it, to love your neighbor. This is what God is teaching us here in Deuteronomy 10. Just to put a final capstone on this, verses 20 and to the end of the chapter you shall and notice there are five commands here five words of actually no that's that's early verse 12 says there were five commands that he says what we ought to do toward god he says you should fear the lord your god you should walk in all his ways and you should love him and you should serve god with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the lord's commandments what does it mean to believe what does it mean to trust god well it means to How do we say? It means to fear him, to to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him, to keep his commandments. It's not just praying a prayer and saying, Jesus, come into my heart kind of thing. Do you love him? Do you fear him? Do you listen to him? Do you obey his word? The issue of circumcision is not so much what do you do with a piece of flesh. It is how do you come to God? You can't come just as you are. You need a heart change. You need something different, drastically different in and about your life. This is not just a physical act. This is a spiritual act. Deuteronomy uh, 30 and verse 6, Moses says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. You can't do it in yourself. This is where we come back to Aslan, helping Eustace. You, God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This really is an issue of life and death. Will you allow God to be your Savior? Will you allow God to undress you and then of course to dress you in robes of righteousness Uh, you know building out that metaphor that analogy there Leviticus 26 also speaks about this now talked about in chapter 12 about the commandment to do it to eight year old eight day old uh, uh, male children and yet Leviticus 26 says if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me this is verse 40 of Leviticus 26 and so forth and so forth, if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they will make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, I'll remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. It's an issue of humility, of repentance, of turning away from sin. It brings that idea of death and burial. Put that away from you. What are you doing? Jeremiah 4 and verse 4 talks about circumcising yourselves to the Lord, removing the foreskins of your heart. And Jeremiah 31, of course, speaks about that new covenant that we have. God will put his law within them on their heart. I will write it. I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Stephen, in Acts 7, that long historical narrative, he really wraps it up in verse 51. He says, you men, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. The issue is not so much a piece of skin. The issue is how does our heart relate to God? Are we humbled before Him? Are we willing to cast off? Is there a cost? Do we acknowledge that there is a cost, a sacrifice we must make to follow the Lord? As Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? Well, a cross is a tool or an implement of execution. Are you willing to die? And it's not just a martyr's death, we may end up dying for Christ, but the point is when you come to Christ, you have to die to yourself, deny yourself, and come after me. Physical circumcision Paul says so many different times in Romans uh, chapter two and into three and then the four. Um, by the way, so many different people, and this was, this is a, a predominant it's becoming less so perhaps, but a predominant understanding of the of Romans, the letter to the Romans is that everything's going along just fine until, whoa, speed bump. What does this chapters 9, 10, 11 do all in the midst of this whole thing? 9, 10, 11 talk about Israel and, and the role of Israel, how the, you know, the remnant and and all that. From the very beginning of the gospel to the very end of the, of the of the epistle, rather, it's about the relationship between Jew and Gentile. It's not an interposition or interruption in Paul's thought. It comes right in line with what he's been arguing all along. Romans 9 through 11 are not a a distraction from the main message. It is, how in the world can God be faithful? Or what what place does ethnic Israel have in God's plan going forward? Well, everything. Uh, When the last Gentile is saved, then all Israel will be saved. And that's what Paul is celebrating there. But he helps us understand the circumcision idea and where that comes in. Romans uh, chapter 2 says... uh, uh, if you want to be circumcised, then you've got to keep the whole law. don't just stop there and say i okay i'm done i I did that part it was hard, but man uh I don't want to do all that sabbath stuff and all the uh, sacrifices well, Paul says, if you're going to try to come to the Lord through circumcision, then you need you're, you're oops, excuse me you're bound to the whole law. you've got to uh, uh fulfill all these things but he says verse twenty nine says uh, the one who is a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not of the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And people are justified not by works, but through faith. God will justify the circumcised by faith, and, by the way, the uncircumcised by faith also. Romans 4 talks about that. One obvious thing, perhaps, about circumcision is for males only. At least that's how God intended it. And yet we think, oh, well, are women then not able to, to come to the Lord? And Paul says it, not specifically here in Colossians chapter 3, but he says it specifically in, in Galatians, that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, uh, or slave or free man, male or female. All can come to to Christ. And that is a wonderful thing, because it doesn't matter... Uh, if you're born male or born female, you are able to come to the Lord. You're able to have a circumcision, as it says here in Colossians 2.11. We'll get back to that text in a moment. You're able to have that circumcision made without hands. In, and uh, it's it's what Christ does for us. Three or four maybe verses, and we'll get back to this verse here in uh, Colossians. But he says um, in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 19, circumcision is... Nothing the physical act of circumcision, nothing and uncircumcision is nothing either. but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. You think, well, wait a minute, the command uh, circumcision was a commandment of God. What do you mean? You know, it doesn't matter anymore. It matters, but not what you're thinking about. The circumcision of the heart is what is important. Keeping the commandments of God only happens when we are in a right relationship with God. Uh, apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. All those things that we read about in Deuteronomy 10, to love, to keep, to serve, all these wonderful things, is about keeping his primary commandments. What are they? Love God and love others. Well, we can't do that. We need God to help us to love him. And we need God to help us to love one another, because that can be kind of difficult sometimes. But we see this wonderful action. When God sanctifies our, or or circumcises our hearts, then we see this reality of, of Galatians 5, in Christ Jesus, neither un, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Well, we come right back to Deuteronomy ten, then. That's what God was impressed about, or, or urgent about. It's not so much what is true about your your body, and it could be the circumcision, or it could be don't cut the corner of your beard, or it could be you know wear the 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 talit, the the prayer stuff, or you know how you spend your Sabbath, your Saturdays, how you. That is. Set that aside for a moment. All that is teaching you is God is holy. He is separate. He comes, you come to him on his terms, not your own terms. And he owns you, body and soul. Honor him in everything that you are. As you honor him, then you're going to let faith work through love. You're going to meet in other people's needs. You are going to be compassionate and pitying other people and to help uh, to uh, meet physical needs or spiritual needs or uh emotional needs toward other people all because we are God's agents we are bringing God's supply to human need and that is a tremendous role that we have one last verse and we'll come back to colossians 2 is galatians 6 paul says there's neither circumcision or neither is circumcision anything or uncircumcision but a new creation ah now we come back to it having a circumcised heart we are dead buried and now raised up with Christ. We are a new creation. We are entirely different now because of what Christ has done. We walk in newness of life. In this verse 11, we see three claims about this relationship or this provision that Christ has made for believers. We see, first of all, the nature or the character of his circumcision. It is a circumcision made without hands. It is not something... Humanly or materially speaking, it's not something physical. This is a spiritual reality, which it always has been. Even back in in the, uh, the Deuteronomy passage, you read, Circumcise your hearts. This is a spiritual reality. Come to Him. And secondly, it says that the um, extent of this circumcision, verse 11 says here, it is the removal of the body of the flesh. Or if you don't mind, the whole body is being addressed here, not just a piece of skin, the whole Flesh is being addressed here, the, the tremendous comprehensive uh, character or, or extent, rather, of the circumcision. And finally, and we'll look carefully at all these things, the circumcision is of Christ. In, in other words, it's not from the patriarchs because Mo, or Abraham did it and therefore we do it. It's not from Moses, from Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. This is Christ's own work. He is the author of this circumcision this is this is stating in whom we're talking about Christ in Christ, you believers, you Colossian believers, were also circumcised, just as we honour uh, Christ and we find our completeness in him, that was back in verse um, ten it says in him, you have been filled or made complete, we have our our sufficiency in Christ. Well, we also have a circumcision made with our hands, a circumcision, not the cutting away of a piece of flesh, but the cutting away of our hearts, removing our our hard and stony, you know, knobby, dragonish kind of hearts, and producing in us or creating in us a heart of flesh, with God's word written on our hearts. He has made us. This is a wonderful uh, reality. We have been. It's not something that we have done. You have been circumcised. This is a passive uh, action, something that God does to us. It is something that He has done uh, without. Human intervention, it's not, I mean, the, the most human intervention we can get is somebody sharing the gospel, sharing the truth of God's word. That's as, as uh, human agent as, as we can get, but this is God's work. He saves, he redeems, he sanctifies, he does these things for his glory. Whenever the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, talked about things that were made with hands or things that were the product of human hands, it is almost exclusively talking about idols, Idols made with hands, made of wood, made of gold, silver, and other things. Um, gods made with hands or even the sanctuary of an idol. So many times Isaiah, big time, talks about these idols that, you know, he, he tells the story of a guy who goes out and cuts down a tree and, and, you know, takes half of it, burns it in the fire, takes the other half and makes an idol and bows down and worships it. What kind of foolishness is that? And yet that is idolatry. That is the epitome of it. And yet we're going to see it in Colossians 3, uh, 5, I think it is, where it talks about greed which is idolatry. When you have a desire for more and more and more and, and your hands are so full, but you want a little bit more, that is idolatry. When you let something stand in the way of you and God, you try to find your sufficiency, your wisdom, your reason for being in something other than God Himself, that is idolatry. And it's made by our own hands, made by, our, we contrive these things. God has made us for Himself, but we turn off toward other things so often. The idea of made without without hands is, uh, Jesus brings it out in terms of the temple. He says, you know, destroy this sanctuary made with hands. On three days, I'll build another made without hands. He's not talking about the temple, all this stuff. He's talking about his body that was going to be raised up. And of course, the most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, and uh, and uh, other things. Ephesians 2 says that, This circumcision that the false teachers in Colossae were all about is a a false circumcision. It is performed in the flesh by human hands. It doesn't affect anything. It was supposed to be a sign of the covenant, but they've made it something entirely different from what God had intended. Uh, Basically, a means of salvation and sanctification. Unless you're circumcised, you can't be part of us. You can't be saved. Well, it says it was done, made without hands. Secondly, the, the extent of it, the removal of the body of the flesh. So many times in Scripture, and we can even see it in Colossian, the letter to the Colossians, is this idea of flesh—you know, the the, the physical or material aspect of us—is either uh, morally neutral; it's just who we are. Uh, When Paul says back in verse two, I think um, I have a great burden for all those people who have not personally seen my flesh, my face. Literally, says those who have not seen my face in the flesh. So flesh doesn't always mean a nasty thing, but it often has the connotation of evil or corrupt or sinful or following after or follow, following after ungodly desires. Here is that idea. It's not just so much the, the, the flesh. It is that whole appetite that we have, a hunger for unrighteousness, a hunger for sin. And what does it say? He has removed the body of the flesh. Now, this idea of removal is not just uh, getting a knife and cutting off a piece of skin. It is the entire elimination of this offense or this this issue that's in our lives. It is something that is uh, a a perfect or a complete action. It is something that is um, exhaustive in what it is. It means really to to strip off and to be unclothed, kind of like Eustace, undressed before you get into the the bath. Well, I, I, I tried to. I can't do it. Christ is the one who removes, who casts off this whole thing. We're going to see the same word used in verse 15, is it? Where God says here, having disarmed the rulers and authorities. That word disarmed is the word cast off, made naked. I mean, just embarrass the the, the world out of these, these rulers and authorities. Shame them. Put them to open shape. This idea of taking on... I guess what boil it down to this idea, salvation is not just something that we add to our lives. It dominates our life. If if we say well, I'm going to add Christ, I mean you know, I you know I'm, I I'm, I serve Christ on Sunday mornings or something, and every other time of the my week is mine. And my the way that I, I spend my time, the way that I spend my money, the way the, the, the things that I read, the music I listen to, the, the the people that I hang out with, the stuff that I do or don't do, that's on me. No. You are bought body and soul. You are Christ. He has stripped you of everything. And yet you think, oh, but I, I like that old flesh that I used to have. Would Eustace have gone back to that old dragonish skin? The you know, first, third, second, third, or fourth, the final one? Would he gone back to that? If you've ever been, um, I don't know, had one of these dirty jobs I mean, I don't know what it might be, working with manure, working in, the, in a sewer, working whatever, and you, and you have these clothes that you have on, and then you come, you're done with the work, and now you change. You take off those dirty garments and you, and you bathe yourself, and then you go right back to those dirty garments? Why would we do that? What in the world are we thinking? And yet, that's what we often do. We recognize Christ has done this wonderful work. He has removed the body of the flesh. I'm no longer bound to it Can read. I'd love to develop it, but Romans six speaks about this this death that we have in the circumcision of Christ, and that we should no longer be slaves. We should no longer present our bodies as slaves to sin, but as servants to God for righteousness' sake. This is what he's after. It's not just something that you know you know you have your Sunday go to meeting kind of a tie. You put it on, and then you take it off when you go home, and you just go back to the way you're living. No, this dominates. It ought to control all aspects of our life we are his it's the removal of the body of the flesh this this desire for sin this desire for greed of jealousy the, the sinful uh, proclivities the desires for doing our own thing uh, Paul has it has this difficulty now there's so many different ideas here I guess one thing is well how how in the I'm still living in my body how is it that God has removed the body of the flesh when I still have this This body, well, that's part of the issue. Romans 7 says, "Wretched," Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And what's Paul's big deal? Does he want to die? Suicidal thoughts? What's going on? No, he says, I see a certain law. I see God's law. I see his wonderful, beautiful law, and I see a certain other law, different law, working in my members. You know, the, the law is good and holy and right, but But when it says, you shall not covet, oh, that just produced all manner of covetous in me. What kind of wicked man? Who will deliver me from the body of this death? That is why Romans 6 teaches us. This is not a physical, initially a physical reality. This is a spiritual reality. We have been circumcised with Christ. But there is a physical reality going to attend to it, namely the resurrection of our bodies. When we have new, holy resurrection bodies, we're not going to be given and desiring things that, are, that distract us from God. We are going to be totally, for the first time in our lives, not even subject to the presence of sin, right? Salvation is is a, a threefold aspect. You know, what we talked about being saved, or have been saved, being saved, and will be saved. The, the past aspect is we, we have been forgiven. There's, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God. In the present, we are being delivered from the that's the penalty of sin. Here, we're being del- now we're being delivered from the power of sin. We don't need to follow sin anymore. We have had the removal of the body of the flesh. We are 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 delivered from that. We don't need to serve sin anymore. And the future saved from the presence of sin. Whoa, when we're the new heavens and new earth, the resurrection bodies. There is no more body of the flesh. Or as Romans seven twenty four says, the body of this death. Philippians three. Uh, says our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by his working, through which he is able to even subject all things to himself. We look for that day, and yet we have the reality of it right now, the spiritual reality. We have a new heart. We have a circumcised heart. We are oriented now toward God, whereas used to be enemies, Right. At enmity with God, having, you know, engaged in evil deeds and hostile mind, all that stuff. Now we are His and we orient our lives toward Him. The removal of the body of the flesh is something that is spiritually true right now and physically will be real in the resurrection time. Who does, that? Who does this? Who's the author? It's Christ. What He has accomplished for us. He is the one who has effected it. He is the one who accomplishes the work in us. He is the one that we are in union with. So many times we see in this passage. In whom we have done this, or in him we have this, or in connection with Christ himself. He is the one that we look to for all these wonderful things. We'll see the implications of it, as I mentioned in in, uh, chapter 3. Therefore, if, if this is true, that you are new creatures in Christ, new creations, then consider the members of your earthly body as dead too. Great nasty stuff, really. Colossians 3, verse 5. As dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Don't you know God's wrath is coming upon those who do things? Verse 8 says, lay these all aside. Cast them away from you, right? The, the putting off of these, these wickedness. Put them all aside. Wrath, anger, malice, abu- uh, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. You've put on the new man. What are you going putting back the old clothes on again? The circumcision of Christ, the salvation we have in him, is so complete. It is so powerful the spiritual reality of it as well as the future physical reality of it we're not so concerned about what goes on in our bodies in terms of a circumcision of the flesh but that circumcision of the heart that we are no longer rebellious or stiff-necked or or think we've somehow smarted god we know better than god himself no humble yourself under god's mighty hand recognize he is the savior recognize that his salvation is so 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 better Comprehensive, I mean, it's not like it's better, like a little bit. It would be, it's like not even a candle that is lit, holding one candle, not even lit, versus the sun, which is going to win. We are that candle that's unlit if we try to have salvation. You know, I can do this by my own big self. No. How about if you let God help you? How about if you receive from Him, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you at the proper time, that you would recognize your need of a Savior? God, I can't do this by myself. I can't cast off my dragonish skin. I need your help. I need your assistance. God is so ready and willing to help those who call upon him. What is the promise? Call upon the name of the Lord. Whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Our Father in heaven, we gratefully say thank you for your salvation, a wonderful salvation that you have spoken to us in your word. We recognize that we are a mess. We are just oh so needy, uh, Without Christ you know being un, unregenerate but also in Christ we need a savior every day we want to have that same attitude as Paul did who will you know wretched man that I am who will deliver me from the body of this death we pray that we would have that desire uh, to practice this circumcision of the heart that we'd no longer be rebellious or stiff-necked but we'd be humbled before you that we would be so much as Moses demanded to love the Lord your God that we should seek you that we would search for you. We would value your word in our lives and in our in our tongue as we speak to other people, as we counsel ourselves, as we counsel others, as we just think how in the world ought people to live in this world? We pray that your word would transform us. Give us hope. We're so grateful that you don't ever forsake us. You are faithful to the end. Please help us to be faithful to the end. Please help us to live out this sanctification, the salvation we have in Christ. He is our only hope. We run to him. We thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.